0: As you can. That makes sense? Yes, help me remember to do that. <clears throat> okay, let me let me make a disclaimer right off the bat. Lest some of you think I have migrated to the dark side, this is not coffee. This is tea. Lovingly prepared by Donna Reed while I was rushing around to get ready, so everybody understand, I'm, I'm still not drinking coffee, and the tea is lovely. Okay, <clears throat> this morning we come to the chapter on sin, chapter 17, that is not a particularly pleasant subject, and in some ways it's painful, in many ways it's painful. But it's an absolutely critical one for understanding who we are and why the gospel is not just necessary, but why the gospel is beautiful. And it is. If we don't understand sin, what it is and how it's affected every one of us, then the gospel, the good news about the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is pretty senseless. Why do we even need it? If, if there's not really this thing called sin, and if sin is not, as the Bible describes it, then the, the whole life coming life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus is a waste. It's an utter absolute waste. But we do need it, because sin is real. And all that Jesus did is not a waste, and we'll see that. So we're going to come to the subject of sin today. Before we dive into that subject, I want to set a little perspective so that we don't get too lopsided. It's always our tendency to get lopsided, isn't it? We, we push one thing too far and we forget that there's this other thing over here and we don't end up straight. So um, let me give it a little perspective. Our focus in this chapter is what we are as sinners, but that's not all we are. What else are we? Give me we're image bearers of God. Sin does not define everything about who we are, and if we lose that perspective—that we are image bearers of God and sinners we are its going to have a bad effect on us. When Adam fell into sin, that image. Being made in God's image, that image was marred and in some ways it was damaged, but it was not eradicated. He still bore the image of God. So, when we talk about sin and its drastic effects on us, and they are drastic, we must be careful to remember that we're still made in the image of God, and we still have worth and dignity and value. Can I I make one real practical application of the need to keep balanced in that? When we discipline our children. Y'all are mostly past that, right? Grandchildren. Grandchildren. We don't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they get away with murder, right? <laughs> when you discipline your children for not disciplining their children. All right, just go with me here. Yeah. When your child sins grievously, and you deal with him or her, you don't holler and scream at them like they were some unreasoning animal. Because they are not. As sinful as they are, and as horrendous as that particular expression of sin may be that got you cranked, they're still image bearers of God. And doesn't James talk about being careful how we use our tongues because the person we're talking to is still made in the image of God and it's an assault on the image of God. Man, I wish I'd have understood that when my kids were tiny because I could get loud and holler and scream. And Now, if they're, if they're about to touch the stove, you holler and scream, okay, because you don't want to get burned. But that's different than hollering and screaming at your kids like they're some unreasoning animal and, and you're beating them to death with your words. Don't do that, because they're, yes, they're sinners, but they're also made in the image of God. And that is the, the root and source of their worth and dignity and value. And even when they're sinning, they have worth and dignity and value. The guys sitting on death row have worth and dignity and value as horrendous as what they've done is, and as deserving of the death penalty as they may be. They're still creatures made in the image of God, and we must never lose sight of that. Um, okay, you know what I forgot to do? Let I me take a second. I need my little clicker here. so. So I can make this thing work. Okay. Um, now let's jump into this chapter. There are We're, we're going to do five things here in this chapter. We're going to talk about the nature of sin, the extent of sin, the consequences of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, and the solution for sin. And that's something I added. The last two are something I added to, to Greg Allison's really excellent chapter on sin, but let's start with the nature of sin. Sometimes, when we're trying to figure out what something really is, what it is at its root and at its heart, it's helpful to go back to the origin of whatever that is if we want to know what it's really like, what its nature is. And in the case of sin, if we want to really get a grip on its nature, where do we need to go? Well, let's go back to the Garden of Eden where Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Now, I'm going to skip the whole subject <coughs> of the actual origin of sin. Where did it come from? There was obviously sin before Adam and Eve fell, in the person of the devil and the angels fell with him, but we know precious little about how that happened. It was all under God's control. God is still not the author of sin. The Bible is crystal clear on that. And and fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So to make too many assumptions or to draw too many conclusions about the origin of sin is is treading on really thin ice and sometimes even dangerous ground. So I'm, I'm leaving that shrouded in the mystery that the Bible shrouds it in. Okay? So we're going to start with what we know for sure, and what we know clearly, by crystal clear revelation, and that is that Satan tempted Eve, and she ate the forbidden fruit. We'll say a little bit more about that later, about about how that happened. And Adam ate, and sin entered the human race at its very fountainhead. Now, there are lots of ways in which we could describe what happened in the garden, but I want to give you um, john Murray's description John Murray is a is an outstanding theologian from another generation he taught at Westminster Theological Seminary for decades and um, probably of all of all the relatively contemporary he passed away when did he die Dave do you know I want to say in the in the late 50s early 60s maybe so I'm putting him in the relative contemporary category even though he's been dead for uh, some decades now but he's probably one of my favorite writers and theologians read his book Redemption Accomplished and Applied it will bless your soul It's, it's good, solid meaty theology but it's readable, understandable and it's the best thing out there on the nature of uh, the work of christ and how that's applied to sinners um, somebody took a lot of his stuff and gathered it together in what are called his collected writings volume one two three and four and this comes from volume two which is sort of a an abbreviated systematic theology of his collected writings and here what he here's what uh, murray says the fall then was complete moral revolt. Hang on to these words, okay? Don't rip through this statement. It's huge. The fall, then, was complete moral revolt against the sovereignty, supremacy, authority, and will of God. In the command given to Adam, there was epitomized the sovereignty, authority, wisdom, justice, goodness, and truth of God. Disobedience to it was an assault upon the divine majesty. Repudiation of his sovereignty and authority, doubt of his goodness, dispute with his wisdom, and contradiction of his veracity. Whew! (coughs) Baby, it's awful outside. No, baby, it's awful inside. Look at the words. Look at the words Murray uses to describe what Adam and Eve did. Moral revolt. That's a big deal. Disobedience. Assault. What images does assault bring to your mind? The the the, the humongous battering ram against the doors of the castle? Assault! Assault is is violent. What else does he use? Repudiation. You, You know what repudiation is? Adam and Eve are standing in the garden saying to God, Go jump in the lake. I don't give a rip what you said. Now, how many of you have ever done that? Literally, literally to God? Anybody ever any, literally done that? Shaking your fist? Well, let me tell you something. Every time we sin, that's what we do. That's what we do. Repudiation of His sovereignty and authority, doubt of His goodness. You know what the devil used to suck them in? How dare he just tell you that you can't? How dare he withhold this tree from you? The devil said nothing about, look at all the other stuff God gave you. And, and he suckered her in to doubting the goodness of God. Dispute. Contradiction. That's a pretty ugly picture. Especially when it is set in contrast to the sovereignty, authority, wisdom, justice, goodness, and truth of God. And we're not talking here about rebellion against the cruel tyrant. We're talking about rebellion against God. The God who is nothing but good and generous and wise and gracious and kind to Adam and Eve. But that's what that's exactly what sin is. It is all of these things to that good and gracious and wise and sovereign and just God. We are really bad. Aren't we? That is, that. I, we run out of words. And as we move along in the history of redemption, sin is never anything less than what it was in the garden. It is never anything less than moral revolt, disobedience, assault, repudiation, doubt, dispute, and contradiction. Now, there may be degrees of those things, but it's never anything less than that. That's what sin was when when we stand in front of the Ten Commandments. Sin is all of the sin is all of all of these things revolt, disobedience, assault, repudiation, doubt, dispute, and contradiction, when we stand in front of the Ten Commandments. That's what it was when David committed sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. That's what it is when the Apostle Paul describes the fallenness of the human race in the first three chapters of Romans. That's what it is when the Apostle John summarizes sin in 1 John 4.3 as the transgression of the law. That's what it is. That's what it is when you lose your temper. <laughs> Do you believe that? That's what it is when you act out of selfishness. That's what it is when you tell that little lie. I don't remember reading in the Ten Commandments, do you, when it says, you shall not lie? I don't remember footnotes there that says little eyes don't count. It's either truth or it's not. That's what it is. That's a pretty ugly picture. And then and then Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. And says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He makes it clear that sin is not just the outward act, but the inward thought, the motive, the attitude. Sin does not become sin when it breaks through the surface and becomes visible to everybody. is is the whale that is the whale not a whale when you can't see it under the surface of the ocean but only when it breaks through in one of those magnificent leaps oh that's a whale <laughs> it was a whale before it broke the sun. my sin is sin long before it ever gets out And there are some sins of yours and mine that have never gotten out. But we're still, whether, whether they get out or whether they, they're locked in here, it's still moral revolt, disobedience, assault, repudiation, doubt, dispute, and contradiction. It's still all that stuff. So, we, we think about the nature of sin and it's it's all of those horrendous things we've described, and it's a heart issue. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, false witness slanders, and the list could just keep on going. Let me give you just one more thought here. Sin is both what we do and what we don't do. This is the very helpful definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is, what is sin? And the answer is sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What does that mean? It's we do what God forbids, and we don't do what God requires. That pretty much covers the territory, doesn't it? We do what God says don't, And we don't do what God says do. But at its heart, whether it's doing what we shouldn't do, not doing what we should do, whether it's a thought, an attitude, a word, an outward action, what makes sin utterly sinful is that it is against God. (coughs) What did David say in Psalm 51 against you? You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, it's not that David didn't sin against Bathsheba. He did. It's not that he didn't sin against Uriah. He did. But what made his sin utterly sinful was that it was against God. It was an assault there's that word again, on the character of God. Isn't the law of God that identifies for us what we should and shouldn't do, isn't the law of God a reflection of His character? So it's, it, it, it's that our sin is against God that makes it so utterly Awful. It's bad enough when we sin against each other. But what makes that awful and horrendous is that it's against God. And we must never lose sight of that. It's not about my standard. It's not about society's expectations. It's not about man-made rules. Sin is sin because it's against God. Um, Okay, that's that's the nature of sin. Uh, questions or comments? Good, let's talk about the extent of sin. If you don't jump in when I ask for questions and comments, I'm not going to wait for very long because I don't want a question I can't answer. So I'm going to move. I'm going to buzz right along. So you've got to be quick on the draw. Let's talk a little bit about the extent of sin. <clears throat> sin has reached every single Person ever. Do I need to explain that? Sin has reached every single person ever in all of history since Adam and Eve. It is universal. There's only been one exception, and that was Jesus. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sinned into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Generic. Mankind. You ladies are not off the hook. Through one man, sinned into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Um, uh, let's keep going. The evidence is, is huge. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men, for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made Righteous. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You understand what he's saying there. He's not saying that what David's mom and dad did when he was conceived was sinful. But from the very earliest possible moment of conception, what was he? A what? A sinner. There, there's a whole argument buried in that about whoa. <laughs> oh, man! I don't want to give it away. There's, there's a whole argument buried in that about when human life begins at conception. Blobs. Of um, Tissue, thank you. Blobs of tissue are not sinners. People are sinners. And from the moment of conception, we are sinners. The wicked are strange from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. <clears throat> We've got it in us. From the get-go. Proverbs 22.15 Foolishness, not silliness, but moral folly is bound up in the heart of a child. How did that happen? Well, Dave and Carla one day sat down with Luke and John Ross and... Thank you, Laura. This happens to me all the time. It has nothing to do with Laura. They sat down with those three kids, one at a time, with Luke. He's the oldest. Luke's the oldest? Yeah. And when Luke was about three, they sat down with Luke said, Luke, we need to have a really important discussion with you. I want to teach you how to lie. Now here's what you do. Or I want to teach you how to be selfish. Here's what you do. Memorize this word, M-I-N-E. Mine! And he did, he learned it. And I want to teach you how to be mean to your brother and your sister. And I want to teach you how to disobey mom and dad. And I'd like to teach you how to shake your fist in God's face? Here's how you do it, son. No parent on earth has ever done that. You don't have to. Why? <laughs> they got it when they're conceived. They they've got it out of the gate. We've never had to teach children to lie or be selfish or act like he alone is the center of the universe. Hey Luke, look, look, you are the center of everything, buddy. Make all of life revolve around you. They didn't have to teach him that. He got that naturally. Right? So did you. So did I. We're born that way. We're sinners. Because we're born that way. Not because our environment is bad. Not because they were born into poverty. Not because they were mistreated at birth. Not because they had no friends. Not because they never had a chance at a decent life. Not because they had a certain color skin. Not because they got in with the wrong crowd. And not because they were taught to be sinners. No. We are sinners by nature. And we got that from our father Adam. We're sinners because we inherited a sinful, corrupt, depraved nature from our father Adam. Theologians call this the doctrine of original sin, which simply means that every person is born with a sinful nature. It's original with them, and they got it from Adam. From the earliest moment of conception, we were sinners. That's original sin. You've probably heard the words Pelagianism or semi Pelagianism. Pelagianism came from a guy named. Pelagius. You guys are really sharp. <laughs> came from a guy named Pelagius who said there's absolutely no connection whatsoever with Adam. <coughs> Adam was that, that was his deal, it wasn't mine. <clears throat> I come in with a clean slate. Yes. That's what Pelagianism says. I come in with a clean slate. But I've learned how to sin by watching other people and by developing bad habits and by example, yada, yada, yada. Semi-Pelagianism tweaks that just a little bit and it says, basically, we we are weakened by Adam's sin, but we're not really dead. We're still able to cooperate with God's grace for salvation and I'm telling you, those positions just do not square with the language of the Bible. To one degree or another, Arminianism is either Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. There are different strengths of, of um, Arminianism. And, and I, I, I say this, I, I, there we've got a gazillion brothers, genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who are, are Arminian in their theology. But their view of the transmission of sin is heresy. It's wrong. It doesn't fit the book. Okay? But now you say, it's not fair. (laughs) What? You know who that's a picture of? You (laughs) and me. It's not fair that I'm in trouble because Adam blew it. That's an objection. It's not fair that I'm in trouble because Adam messed up. Here's my answer to that objection. By God's design. Adam stood in the garden as the representative of the entire human race so that what he did counts for me, really. That's not fair. Just hang on. God put Adam in the garden by design as the representative of everybody who was going to come after him. It's the principle of representation. In the same way... That our senators and representatives in Frankfurt and Washington, what they do counts for me. Like it or not, what they do counts for me. If I were in a certain position, I could not opt out of the partial government shutdown because I don't agree with whatever led to that. I don't have that. No, what they did counts for me. It's a principle of representation. Now this could get ugly, (laughs) because these two teams are playing tomorrow night for the national championship. Anybody here for Clemson besides me? Anybody here for Alabama? Or are you ashamed to say that you are?
1: (laughs) Go Gators!
0: (laughs) Go Gators! (laughs) <laughs> they're, they're back in the swamp <laughs> they're not in this thing buddy um, okay so so you play on either Clemson's or Alabama's football team but you know for certain have you ever seen how many football players are, are lined up on the sidelines of a game you know very good and well that not every one of those guys gets in the game some of those guys never get in the game but they're wearing a helmet and a uniform, and they're a Clemson Tiger or an Alabama. <laughs> what are they, Tide? Alabama. What? What's a Tide? Crimson. Crimson Tide. Yeah, I'm red tide. It's like an algae. It's algae. It's algae. It's algae. <laughs> yeah. Okay. On the coast. <laughs> Thank you. You're you're a member of the team, okay? But you never see. You, come Monday night, you are not going to see thirty seconds of action on the field. You won't. You just won't. Given. But when your team wins and the, and the clock runs out and everybody rushes onto the field, what are you going to say? We won. we won. No, you didn't. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You never set a foot on that field. You didn't make one tackle. You didn't gain one yard. You didn't touch the football. You did nothing. But you say, we won. It's the principle of representation. You're part of the team. We're part of Adam's team. We fell. We fell. But if you still reject the principle of representation, then there is absolutely no possibility that you will ever be saved. And make it safely to heaven. Because if there's no if there's if representation is not fair and it's not right and there's no such thing as representation and Adam didn't represent me, then Jesus didn't represent you either. And you are totally on your own to make it to heaven. And too bad, so sad, you'll never make it. Because you can't. If what Jesus did in His life and death and resurrection was only good for Himself, then what was the point? He didn't need it. If salvation happens for anybody, it will be by representation. The just for the unjust. By his wounds, you are healed. Substitution. Representation. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, through what? through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. It's representation. For as through the one man's disobedience to many weird sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So the extent of sin, it's to every person. <clears throat> Ever. In all of history. We got it from Adam. And had you been Adam, you'd have done the same thing. But now let's take this extent of sin one step further. Sin has not only reached every single person ever, it has reached every single part of every single person ever. It's reached every single part of every single person ever and we call that total depravity. This picture is getting uglier all the time, isn't it? The more we talk about it, the uglier it gets. But that's what it is. Total depravity doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could possibly be, but simply that every part of us, mind, emotions, will, affections, ability to choose, to think, every part of us has been affected by sin to the point that we are totally unable to remedy our condition on our own. And if if you... Believe in total depravity, which you must, because what the Bible teaches, then you must also believe in total inability. We're unable to fix ourselves. We don't have it in us. So, <clears throat> when John writes in chapter 1, and he talks about... Um, let me get the first. I've only got the second half of this verse up here. He says but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name who were born prior to believing they were born not of the will of not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God what did you have to do with your regeneration Zero. That's a divine act of God. To, to implant the principle of new life within you. So that you can repent and believe. I'm, I, I, if God doesn't wake me up, I can't do that. Because the mindset on the flesh... It's hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. The mind set on the flesh is the, is the mind of the unconverted man. It's the mind of the person ruled by his sinful nature. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And Ephesians 2, one, and you were dead. In your trespasses and sins. You have never, ever, 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 ever ever seen a dead man wiggle. Have you? No. Total depravity and total inability. And he was saying, Jesus was saying, For this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me that's the word of ability no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father you can't you don't have the ability i get after my english students all the time can i go sharpen my pencil i'm sure you can but don't get out of your seat because you didn't ask for permission You ask me if I think you're able to sharpen your pencil. Well, of course I think you're able to sharpen your pencil. Can is a word of ability. May I sharpen my pencil? You certainly may. If you can. (laughs) No man can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. So that's the extent of sin. It it sin extends to every single person in all of history ever, and it extends to every single part of every single person ever. And that's a that's a really ugly picture. It's getting worse and now it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse still so we need to talk about the consequences of sin the consequence of sin sin has had a profound impact on creation it's had a profound impact on creation remember what God said to Adam in Genesis 3 because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you in toil you you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you anybody had experience with that (laughs) yeah (laughs) I thought I planted corn I got some corn, but I got weeds. And I didn't plant them. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. What happened to creation is similar to what happened to man. Man was made in the image of God, but sin entered and marred that image. It did not destroy it. It damaged it. So with creation, in a sense, creation still displays the glory of God. Does enough so that those who've never heard a word of this are still without excuse because they see God in creation, and they deny it and they push it down and they suppress it and all the rest of it. But the glory of God is seen in creation. But what else do you see in creation? You see the fall. Anybody know what that is? Mount St. Helens before and after. Now did a bunch of hikers go up on Mount St. Helens and plant ten thousand tons of TNT to blow the side out of the mountain? No. What brought that and and that's a tiny, 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 tiny little piece of the destruction that came out of Mount St. Helens eruption? What's behind that? Our world is broken. Why is our world broken? Because Adam fell. And sin has had a profound effect upon the created world. We see the effects of fall all over creation. There's drought. And there's wildfires that are not all started by somebody's carelessness. Some of them are. There are volcanoes. There are floods. That was Houston. And there are humdinger tornadoes. Look at that thing. Man! Where did that come from? Ultimate answer, where did that come from? Fall. It came from the fall. When when God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground, see see the see the huge principle there. Thorns and thistles and sweat are not the only effects in creation of the fall. He's he's given us one little picture of the big Picture, that all of creation has been affected by the fall. It's hard work to get the ground to produce. It does. But you're going to sweat to make it happen. It's not easy. But sin has had an even more profound effect on man. The consequences of sin are evident in creation, but they're evident also in man. And what theologians generally describe as the consequences of sin are guilt and pollution, or corruption. That, those are the consequences for us, among many, many other things, really. Um, guilt is, if we're guilty, we're liable to and deserving of punishment. Guilt is liability to punishment. I was doing 70 mile an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone and I get stopped and I'm guilty. I'm liable to paying a fine or maybe even going to jail if I was drunk. I I deserve that punishment. I'm guilty. Liable to and deserving of punishment. Romans two twenty three 23, for the wages of sin is death. Boom. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. What comes to me because of that? Death. I'm guilty. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I'm, I'm un, I commend ungodly and unrighteous. What do I deserve? The wrath of God. I'm guilty. That's a huge (coughs) consequence. Listen to John Murray again. We may find a great deal of emphasis upon the undesirability of sin, the unfortunateness of sin, the odiousness of sin, the ugliness, the disgustingness, even the filthiness of sin. But the Christian estimate of sin is that it is wrong. That it ought not to be it is not only undesirable, it is damnable in the strongest sense of the word. It's damnable. That's, that's because I'm guilty, I deserve to be damned. It's not just that what I've done is undesirable, nasty, filthy. What else does he say? Odious? Ugly, disgusting. It is wrong. It's wrong, and I deserve damnation. Because it's wrong. And it's against God. Consequences of sin for me and for you are huge. I'm guilty. Boom. But not only am I guilty, I am polluted. We are corrupt at the source. The fountain is poisoned. Everything that flows from it is stained with sin. Proverbs says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Anything comes out of the heart. We are heart-driven creatures. Everything comes out of the heart. Okay, what's our heart like? Oh, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the source, that's the fountainhead. It is desperately sick. It is more deceitful than all else. Who can understand it? So, we read, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, etc., etc., Let me give you let me give you John Murray one more time. Man's understanding is darkened, his will enslaved, his conscience perverted, his affections depraved, his heart corrupted, his mind enmity against God. That's how polluted I am. Consequence of sin. We see them all around us in creation. Consequence of sin for us guilt and pollution. That's really, really bad. That picture of sin is as bleak and hopeless as it gets. We are really that bad. And if you balk at that picture that God paints of you as a sinner, then that only underscores the next point I want to make about the deceitfulness of sin. If you don't think it's all that bad, you've been sucked in by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The devil does not want you to know how bad you really are and how awful sin really is. It gives him bad press. So he wants you to think that sin... Is as warm and friendly and a- as this as this campfire, and I and and it, it's even a pretty font. <laughs> That's what the devil wants you to think. That's what it is. It's an ugly raging fire. Look at it in Proverbs. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That's the billboard the devil puts up on the side of the road. Stolen water is sweet. And, 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 you, and you can see a picture of, of some really thirsty guy guzzling a, a, just a beautifully crystal clear drink of water and it's coming out of a fountain or it's in a, in a um, the really health conscious kinds of water bottles that people use and it's just sparkling and it's just ah man yeah. stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant you know what the next verse says but he does not know that the dead are there And that our guests are in the depths of Sheol. Take the mask off. Take the blinders from your eyes. Don't be sucked in by the deceitfulness of sin. I really like this image. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man. Ripped him off. (laughs) This is going to taste really good. But afterward, his mouth would be filled with gravel. You ever been camping and the hot dog fell into the fire and you fetch it out because you're starving? We don't starve in our campouts, but you fetch it out because you don't want to waste that hot dog, but it's still got grit. You try to get it cleaned off, but it's still got grit from the fire. And you bite into that top dog and... Ah, ah. It's awful. Take the mask off. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to him, but afterwards his mouth will be filled with gravel. Don't ever forget that. Remember, remember Eve in the Garden of Eden? Genesis 3, 1-7. You won't die. What did God say? In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. You won't die. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And all of that will be good for you. And she took it. Hook, line, and sinker. And in a heartbeat, her mouth was filled with gravel. And she was trapped in the raging inferno when she thought it was going to be just a pleasant little campfire. So, it's really bad. It's worse than we think. But there is a solution for sin. i got two minutes. And that solution is nothing less than the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the light of His Word and the gracious help of the Holy Spirit. In his life, some of you have heard me describe, I never get tired of describing what Jesus did this way. In his life, he did what we could not do. He kept God's law perfectly for us without a single flaw. Romans 5.19, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteousness. And he holds that obedience out, that perfect, flawless obedience out to sinners. All that we've just talked about to sinners like that. He holds that obedience on. He says, here. Here. You can have this as if it were really, genuinely, truly, thoroughly, every ounce of it, yours. I didn't do it. Have you done it? No. But Jesus says, here, here, this is yours. As if it really were yours. And then he dies in our place. The just for the unjust to take the punishment that our sins rightly deserve. So he says, here, I'll give you all of my righteousness. This is yours. You can have it free of charge. The whole business, boom, it's yours. And I'll take your sin. Boom, it's mine. It's mine. All our iniquity was laid on him. And when the wrath of God fell on Jesus hanging on that cross, it was what should have fallen on me. And He took it. uh, There's not a sweeter deal anywhere in all of history. He He gives me His righteousness. He takes my unrighteousness. And the solution is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you believe and understand, even to some degree, all the stuff that we've just talked about for the last 50 minutes, this, this ought to knock us over. It ought to knock us over. Amen. And he gives us his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our past so we can see clearly how to live in a way that pleases him. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us, to help us, to convict us, to open our eyes so that we're not alone in our fight against sin. And he changes our hearts and puts a new principle of life within us so we actually can repent and believe. And he promises to finish what he started. We are no much for the devil, but the devil is no match for Jesus. Amen. We gotta go. Y'all good with that? All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you seems hardly enough, but it's what we have. Thank you for what you have done to save sinners like us. We are worse than we know, but you know all of that. And still, you sent your son to take our place in living and dying. And so thank you that there's a solution for something as awful and horrendous as sin. May we rejoice today in what you have done to solve this huge, huge problem that we have made. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us now to worship you with full hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the average say-